And before we get into our scripture reading this morning that comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, I'm going to invite us to take a moment and center ourselves and be in prayer. Won't you join me? Gracious and loving God, despite all of your power, all of your wisdom, and your incredible acts of salvation, you choose to be defined by your gifts of love and grace. And we, your people, seek to be defined by nothing less. Help us in this time when your word is open to us and we receive once more the testimony of your mighty acts, your love, your grace, your forgiveness, and your ability to reconcile not only us to you, but us to one another, that this would be a time when we would encounter you in new and powerful ways. For there is so much brokenness, O oh God, and we seek to be part of the balm that will bring healing, hope, and Christ to all. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Hear these words of Scripture. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love, making every effort to maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive and gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ." This is the word of God for the people of God. Be to God. Amen. I know that a great many of you have followed my trials and tribulations at General Conference, and my deepest regret is that what was being projected outward to the media and to people who were following along on social media is not correct. There is a great deal of misinformation that is being spread, and a lot of it is not from a desire to sow chaos and anarchy or create pain and suffering, but genuine misunderstanding. Our system in the United Methodist Church is broken. There is a fundamental flaw that was revealed in the convening of this called General Conference. And I could name for you, probably for hours, things that were representative of this brokenness. But let me just name a few. The first is that if you had been in the gallery where I and the other observers were, you would notice that there was a large number of open seats on the floor where the delegates were because 40 of them failed to make it past customs. We knew that this conference was coming in 2016, and yet our church 
fail to ensure that every delegate would be able to arrive and hear and lift their voice and vote. That is a brokenness of a system. It's also true that when you look at how things happened there, it was very clear that there was no centralized leadership. The leadership was focused so much about policy and procedure that it failed to address the hopes and the spirituality. What I encountered was not holy conferencing. It was unholy caucusing. People did not gather there to seek God's guidance. They came to campaign for their position. And that is not who we are in the body of Christ. Over and over again, I listened to Christians speak in such an unholy, sinful way to one another that I was embarrassed to be a United Methodist. I was embarrassed to have been present, and yet I could not leave. I could not draw myself away from it because I had covenanted with you and with God and with others in the church that I would go and I would bear witness to what I saw. Our brokenness was made manifest in so many ways. For instance, we use a parliamentary procedure called Robert's Rules of Orders. And most of you may be familiar with that in some way, but if you've ever actually had to follow it, it is so convoluted and confusing that the United Methodist Church actually had to hire a parliamentarian who's not Methodist to come and tell us, you're out of order here. That's not how this works. You clearly don't know your own system. That's brokenness. How can bishops and ordained clergy and laity who have read the Book of Discipline not be able to follow a system? Because the system is broken. The system is broken. Any system that requires two for and two against is not of Christ. That is not who Jesus has called us to be. For me, it really struck home that something needed to change at the closing speech for the one church plan, the church plan that was supposed to be more inclusive in some ways, but not openly affirming as many had hoped, the one church plan, a American male, white male, stood up before the entire church and told black people not to vote. Can you imagine a white American male told non-white people not to vote in 2019? Shame on us. Shame on us. Because every delegate had been called up by their people and sent and given an incredible gift. Every person in the gallery, all of us, would have done anything to have voice and vote. And then we stand there and tell people, don't vote? What have we done except manifest our brokenness? And there was silence from those who had the power and the authority and the ability to call us into account. We are broken this day in the United Methodist Church, and we need to go on to perfection legislatively. Amen. We need to be called into account. So what do we do now? What has actually happened is that a plan has passed that truly changes nothing for you in doctrine and in polity, 
But what it does is it continues all of the language that has been in the book of discipline, and it now lets me and any other clergy person know that if we are to break discipline in this area, that the first thing will happen to us is that we will have one year suspension without pay, which would send most of us to the poorhouse. Do it again, and you're done. However, it is not over. It must be approved by our Judicial Council, our Supreme Court of the United Methodist Church, and my understanding is from people who clearly know more than I do that there are a number of pieces that are unconstitutional. So we will have spent millions and millions of dollars not to accomplish anything, but sow seeds of pain and suffering. Millions and millions of dollars to slander ourselves in the public eye. That is brokenness. That just reflects that something was fundamentally flawed in what happened in the church. So what do we do now? What do we do? And on the plane rides back, God just spoke to me in a very powerful way and said, we need to be reminded, maybe not anywhere else in the world, but here in Crozet, we know what we do. And God reminded me of August 11th and 12th of 2017 when the Unite the Right rally came to Charlottesville, co-opted Charlottesville, and began to preach and embody hatred and brought about suffering, destruction, and death. Did we turn our back on Charlottesville? Did we throw all of our UVA things into the trash? Did we say, oh my gosh, the news is saying that the civil servants and the police and the people of Charlottesville are hate mongers? Did we believe them? No. We know because many of us ourselves work in Charlottesville. We go there, we are students, we are at work and at play there. We understand who these people are. Some of us actually live technically in Charlottesville. We decided then to win back Charlottesville. We decided that we were going to show the world that that is not who Charlottesville is. That they are not a hotbed of hatred, but instead it is a city of love. And we attended their vigils. We went to the concerts to show unity that we believe that that was not who they are. And we are called to nothing less now. And I want to thank all of you who didn't give in to that very understandable, guttural, visceral reaction of, I'm walking away. Because there have been reports that annual conferences, clergy, bishops, seminaries, churches, we're going to walk away, but at least you have been faithful enough to gather for worship. You have come here this day, and if you choose to walk away, at least I will feel comfortable knowing, not that you ever need to feel like you need to make me comfortable, but in knowing that you have come here into this body of Christ. You have heard who we are and what our message is moving forward, and if you choose to leave, then there will be no ill will between us and you. None. But we have work to do, those who stay. Our image is slandered and maligned. We appear to be a hate-filled people. And that is not who we are. That is not what we are called to be. We have been gifted the greatest theology of grace in the world. Our structure may be broken, but our theology is rock-solid. Our leadership may have failed us, but Christ has not. And we cannot give in when people 
fail us, we don't forsake God. I cannot completely disavow myself of the United Methodist Church. This is the church into which I was born, nurtured, given the power to explore the pulpit and discover my call. And at the end of the day, if there was one reason why I cannot leave the United Methodist Church is because that I know there is a grain of hope in a church that brought me together with you. That my journeying here to Crozet and a system that gave me you to serve is not irredeemable. And because I have that faith, I woke up on Friday morning and even before I put my child on the bus at 719, I filled out the clergy nomination form to make myself eligible to be elected as a general conference delegate for 2020. I, know, I felt like I should have told you that. So I did. And you, know, you take a step out in faith and you worry about what's going to happen. And I realized I had done this. And so I put it on Facebook that I had done it. Because that's what you always do when you make a monumental decision. You put it on Facebook. And I did that. And immediately I got a positive response. In fact, someone sent me a private message that said, and I quote for you, best news ever. I was like, I don't know about that one, but I appreciate the sentiment. And so they had said, and some of you will love this, I was building my general conference dream delegation, and I was hoping you would go. I don't know if I'll go. What happens is that all clergy in the Virginia Annual Conference, come June Annual Conference, will have the opportunity to vote for clergy. My name will be on the ballot. Only ordained elders and deacons may go but all of our clergy may vote. And so out of over 1,200 clergy, 11 of us will be elected. It will be an act of God if I am elected. <laughs> However, I know that God is at work. The shirt I'm wearing today says, this affects all of us. It was one of five shirts that I had designed for my trip to General Conference. And I wore all of them, the one that said Conference Crasher, I wore the one that said United by Grace, the next day I wore the one that said Thy Will Be Done and Let the Spirit Speak, and I had one extra shirt just in case I needed to swap things out. And then when I got home, I realized how poignant that this is the shirt I had left, because this affects all of us. What has been done affects every single one of us, whether you agree with the wording of the current Book of Discipline or whether you don't, this decision affects all of us. And very few of us feel like it has affected us positively, like a blessing. One of my greatest fears was that something would happen at Call General Conference that would make it impossible for me to stay with you. That was my greatest fear. It didn't happen at Call General Conference. What ended up happening was that after I submitted that nomination form and I was corresponding with people over social media Friday morning, I was simultaneously writing yet another blog about the acronym LGBTQIA and how it unfairly lumped three groups of people into this discussion who the scriptures and the book of discipline have no issue and I felt that for us to have a just conversation moving forward, we needed to identify this. And so I was creating and composing this blog post, and all of a sudden, I had a vision. 
I had a divine encounter. And I realize that that is disturbing and uncomfortable to hear, but I promise you that it is not as disturbing and uncomfortable and terrifying as it is to live. And I have been in a relationship with God for so much of my life that I know all too well when God chooses to speak to me. And God said to me, it is time. And my response was, what do you mean it's time? What does that mean? And God says, you know what that means. It is time that all of my people be able to find their place in my church. And I was terrified. Because I didn't just go to general conference to witness it as your pastor and to send you back my reports and my pastoral understanding of what was going on. I, in my heart of hearts, went to call general conference looking for the grail. I went there looking for the manifestation of God's will that would show us that we had been wrong. I have been struggling with the church's position on non-heterosexual persons since my friend came out to me when I was 15 in high school. I have showed you the scriptures that I have read. I have wrestled for years. And I know that there are probably millions of Methodists like me that have. But here's the hard part. The hard part is that we have been raised with this tremendous blessing, this framework called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And it helps us to theologically reflect. It means that when we are trying to discern God's will through prayer and through reading the scriptures and through engaging in dialogue and holy conferencing, that there are four things that we are to engage and address so that therefore we are assured that it is not our will but God's that is done. And the firm foundation of the quadrilateral that is the most important is scripture, followed closely by tradition, the ways of not only the United Methodist Church and its antecedent, the Methodist Episcopal Church, but every church of Christianity of which we have been a part going back to the early church of the apostles. Also, the gift of reason, because the Methodist Church recognizes that this rational mind that God has given us is truly a blessing when engaged appropriately. And that is why it is joyful in the Methodist Church that we can bring into our discernment and our discussions science and medicine. But it also means that we have to pay attention to the heart, to experience is the fourth. And experience is not only an individual's experience, but it is our corporate experience. For we at Crozet have had experiences and we can testify to them. We are able to say that we have experienced God in powerful and profound ways. And so there are many people like me who when we were unable to overcome the scriptures, we defaulted to the position of the church. We defaulted to what was there. And it was wrong. It was not right. But I had nothing to push back. And so I went there and I was hoping that the Commission on a Way Forward, 32 of the best and brightest of Methodism from around the world, would have, would have done this work, that they would have found it, that God would have revealed it in due time. That was my hope and my prayer, that I would hear it. And I and millions like me would go, aha, there it is. This is what we have been waiting for. We have been waiting to override these nine texts. We have been waiting to override people who think that holiness is revealed in heterosexual sex. And it did not come. 
It did not come because it was very clear from not only the writings that were produced by the commission, but by the words of the people on the commission that they did not focus on relationship. Instead, they focused on structure. And the United Methodist Church is not a structure. It is a relationship between God and God's people. We didn't go there to fix polity. And those of us who thought we did have missed the boat. We went there because we want to be reconciled to each other. We want to know that all are welcome here. We want to ensure that God's grace is for all people. And that did not happen. And so I went, and day after day, I sat and I listened, and I waited. Because I know that in the fullness of time, God can do miracles. I have seen them. I know. And yet, I got back, and all I could remember was how in the gospel account of Matthew and Mark, it records that Jesus could do no miracles in his hometown because they did not believe in him. We gathered at Call General Conference, and it wasn't about what Jesus could do for us. It's what we could do about our system. And that was the fundamental failure. And so I was having this vision and this painful conversation with God. I said, you have not given me the scripture. How am I supposed to tell them? First of all, who's going to listen to me? I'm a female clergy person that looks like this from Crozet that nobody can pronounce. Who's going to listen to me if I can't give them the scriptures or if I can't give them some new mind-blowing way to interpret the scriptures? And God just said, I've given you all the scriptures. I've given them to you. I said, then you're going to have to show me where. You have to show me where it is. Because I know what people want because I was one of them. And God said, don't you remember Peter? Of course I remember Peter. How many times have I preached on Peter? Peter was a mess, by the way. Of course I remember Peter. I resonate very deeply with Peter. I said, what about Peter? I said, don't you remember? Do you remember in Matthew where there's the account of Jesus stayed on one side of the Sea of Galilee and sent the disciples over in the ship? Yeah, there was a storm came up overnight and they were battered by the waves and the wind and they were scared. And early in the morning, Jesus comes walking out and they think he's a ghost. This is great. And he says, yes, yes. But what happened? He said, do not be afraid, for it is I. And Peter said, if it is you, Lord, then command me to come to you, and I will walk on water. What did Jesus say? Come. And so he does. And what I had missed every other time I've ever read that text, and I have read it a lot, what I missed that resonated with me this time was that Peter got so close to Jesus that at the last moment when he doubted and he failed, he was so close. The text says Jesus immediately reached out his arm and grabbed him. He was so close to Christ that then he doubted. I said to God, do you want me to take a failure story to the church? You want me to tell my people, and all people, because this is on the internet, that we should model ourselves off a story of failure I must be insane. And God said, no, no, because you do not doubt. And for all of my faults and my failures and my sins and the evil I have unleashed in the world, I do not doubt. And so God said to me, 
you are to tell them this story. I said, God, you know the fear that we have. Those of us who have grown up in the tradition, you know that our greatest fear is that we would be wrong, that we would create barriers and obstacles and be a stumbling block, that we ourselves would be a millstone around the neck of others, and that they would be penalized because of our misunderstanding, our misinterpretation of the scripture, and our misapplication of it. You know that that is our fear. And God said, my grace is greater than your gravest sin. If you are all willing to covenant to the same thing, even if you were to be wrong, my grace is greater. And so the message that God gave to me was that it is no longer acceptable to exclude non-heterosexual persons from clergydom. That the message is that if we are all willing to rise to the same high standards, celibacy and singleness and fidelity and holy matrimony, that this is what God's will is. And it terrifies me. I could throw up right now. But God said that we have forgotten what holy matrimony truly is. Holy matrimony is a covenant that creates a sacred space so that two consenting adults can not only be knitted together in a whole new way through their hearts and their minds, but through their bodies. It creates a space unlike any other where adults can have unlimited sexual expression of love. And that we are not the gatekeepers of that goodness and blessing. And as I say this to you, I'm reminded that I have done some terrifying things in my life. I have gone before the board of ordained ministry and tried to convince people who didn't know me that I have a call to ordained ministry and that I have bore the fruit to prove that and prayed that they would see it and recommend me for ordination. I have sat before earthly powers like a family court judge that I had only known for less than an hour while I waited in the most painful silence for minutes upon minutes to find out if I would get to keep my only surviving child. I have literally stood before an administrative church council and had to share all of the painful, humiliating reasons why my marriage failed and I was getting a divorce. But nothing terrifies me like this moment before you. Because I know that in telling you this, that this is how I feel, and knowing that I can no longer abide a system that is anything less than this vision, that I have, may have made it impossible for me to stay with you. I know that I am speaking against the same book that I have covenanted with God and the church to uphold. But if I know anything, if all of my years of ministry and my life as a Christian have taught me anything, it is that I cannot go against God's will. And I know that this may change things between us. It may change the future before us. And that terrifies me. I do not stand here without personal risk. It is not just my appointment here or my ability to be reappointed anywhere. If I leave this appointment, I know very well that my ex-husband may take me back to court and win custody of my child. I know that I might be censured or even excused by the cabinet in my bishop. I know that I, by even putting this on the internet, have made us a target 
from others. And I know that there are people that I love who are going to be angry and hurt and brokenhearted over what I have just told you. Members of my family, my friends, my colleagues, members of my beloved church. But God knows that I cannot keep quiet. And so God gave the most ridiculous word to a most unworthy servant. And God and I have been arguing, and I am practically dehydrated from crying for the last 48 hours. But we have been arguing over and over again. And finally I said to God, if I do this, you realize that this could be the end of everything. And God said, remind my church of what you preach in Romans. God, what is it about Romans? God said, Romans says that nothing can separate you from my love. Nothing. But what we have done as the body of Christ known worldwide as the United Methodist Church has created a separation of God's love through us with others. We are in violation of God's word. And we can no longer walk that path. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It is a day in the liturgical calendar when there are clergy all over the world, well outside the United Methodist Church, talking about a time when Jesus took four of his most trusted disciples up on a mountain, and there he was transfigured. His clothing suddenly became whiter than snow, dazzling white. And there appeared with him two paragons of the faith of the Jewish people, Moses and Elijah. And the apostles were shocked at this revelation. They were amazed that God had, before their very vision, transformed everything. Today is Transfiguration Sunday in the life of the United Methodist Church. We will either transfigure ourselves to show the world an unadulterated Christ, or we will become as defunct as the Sadducees of the temple. This is our time. This is what is at stake. And I recognize that I have just made this very difficult for some of you, and I apologize to you. I have not been a perfect pastor. I am not everything that you deserve, but I love you. I love you when you are here. I love you when you are not. And I love those who are not yet here. And if I have created pain and suffering, then I do repent of that. So there's only one thing left to do, and that is to ask you if you would be willing to celebrate the sacrament of Holy Communion with a wretched sinner like me. I don't know what God will do in the next few days, but I know that God can do all things and that if we are willing, God will show us God's miracles for there is no greater time in need than now. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.